Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Deep Hungers. It's based upon the lectionary readings for August 1st, 2021. I spent last week helping my elderly parents move into a new home. While I unpacked boxes and organized kitchen cabinets, my father shared early childhood stories I'd never heard before. He described a time when he was five years old, when his village in South India suffered a food shortage. The rains didn't come, crops and supply chains failed, and farming families like my grandfather's faced the prospect of starvation. My father told me candidly what it felt like to go to bed hungry at such a young age, how physically painful and frightening it was for him and his siblings, how wretched it was to wake up each morning and face the prospect of another day with little or no nourishment. Of course, the story broke my heart, but it also helped me to connect some dots I'd never connected before. When I was growing up, my father obsessed about keeping everyone within his sphere of influence well-fed. Our refrigerators and freezers were perpetually jam-packed. Dad loved taking us all out to all-you-can-eat buffets. He and my mom spent hours cooking for our friends and extended family members, feeding them until they were stuffed. It was an obsession I found bewildering as a child because I didn't understand its origins. We were not a farming family living in a drought-stricken South Asian village. We were a comfortably middle-class family living in suburban America. But it didn't matter. My dad was haunted, I understand now, by a primal fear, a primal deprivation. Old hungers die hard. Every three years, the lectionary asks us to spend five long weeks in John's Gospel contemplating emptiness and fullness, hunger and nourishment, Christ and bread. We are asked to contemplate Jesus' self-description as the bread of life or the bread which comes down from heaven. We watch as he feeds people. We listen as the people he feeds clamor for more. And we hear the challenge of his words when he invites the crowds to probe the hungers beneath their hungers the unspoken deprivations that fuel their desires, the needs they carry in secret places. I'll be honest, these five bread weeks are challenging because they forced me to get out of my head and experience Jesus with my heart, or more accurately, with my gut. It's easy to look at Jesus and see a wisdom teacher or a moral exemplar. Like many of you, I admire the fact that he speaks with wisdom and authority, and I know that his compassionate way of life is worthy of emulation. But there's a problem with reducing Jesus to a clever guru or a generic good guy, a problem Jesus articulates very carefully in the lectionary readings we're lingering over this summer. He doesn't stop at telling the crowds to learn from him, believe in him, or even follow him. Jesus issues an invitation that is far more intimate and provocative when he calls himself our bread. He invites us to eat him, eat him, and never be hungry again. What's at stake for me in this strange invitation is whether or not I will move past religion and into intimacy, past abstraction and into communion, past self-sufficiency and into radical, whole life dependence on a God I can taste but never control. We become what we eat, don't we? So what are we becoming? In her beautiful meditation on Jesus as bread, theologian and Episcopal priest Lauren Winner writes, in calling himself the bread of life and not say, creme caramel or caviar, Jesus is identifying with basic food, with sustenance, with the food that for centuries afterward would figure in the protest efforts of poor and marginalized people. No one holds caviar riots, people riot for bread. 
So to speak of God as bread is to speak of God's most elemental provision for us, which raises all sorts of questions. Am I hungry? If yes, what am I hungry for? If no, what has made me full? Am I ashamed of my hunger? Does hunger scare me? What kinds of bread do I substitute for Jesus? Do I feel in my gut that Jesus is elemental provision, not appetizer, not dessert, not occasionary dietary supplement, but essential everyday food without which I will starve and die? When my father shared the grueling story of his childhood hunger, I understood something about what has driven him for decades as an immigrant to the United States. His experience as a five-year-old in India was about far more than literal food. It was about security, safety, provision, protection. It was about whether the world he occupies is an abundant, generous, hospitable place or a barren, empty, dangerous one. Jesus invites the crowds to recognize the deep hungers beneath their surface hungers. Of course they're hungry for literal bread. They're poor, food is scarce, and they need to feed themselves and their families. There is nothing wrong, substandard, or unspiritual about their physical hunger. Remember, Jesus tends to their bodily needs first, without reservation or preconditions. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he asks the crowds to probe the soul hungers that drive them restlessly into his presence, hungers that only the bread of heaven can satisfy. What are those hungers? A hunger for security and belonging, meaning and purpose, a longing for connection, communion, intimacy, and love, a desire to know and be known, a hunger for delight, for joy, and for creative engagement with the world and all of its complexity, mystery, and beauty, an ongoing hunger for wholeness, redemption, and courage, a craving for the healing of old wounds. What would you add to this list? It's one thing to name our hungers and quite another to trust that Jesus will satisfy them. After all, we're so good at finding substitutes for communion with God. Mine include perpetual busyness, social media, books, movies, the 24-hour news cycle, exercise, chocolate, and other people. Do I really trust that Jesus is my bread, my essential sustenance? Very often the answer is no. Very often Jesus is an abstraction, a creed, a set of Sunday rituals. Why? Maybe because I don't come to him ravenous. I don't recognize my daily, hourly dependence on his generosity. In short, I just plain don't expect to be fed by him. Instead, I hide my hunger because I'm ashamed to want and need too much. In a powerful sermon on God's generosity, Lutheran minister Nadia Boltzweber describes the shame that often keeps us from feasting on Jesus. It's hard to accept not just that God welcomes all, but that God welcomes all of me, all of you. Even that within us we wish to hide the part that cursed at our children this week or drank alone or has a problem with lying or hates our body, the part within us that suffers from depression and can't admit it or is too fearful to give our money away or is riddled with shame over our sexuality or cheats on taxes, all these parts of us we wish Jesus had the good sense to not welcome to his table are invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll readily admit that I'm still a novice in the presence of this challenging gospel text on hunger, bread, and Jesus. I want to taste and see that the Lord is good, but I recognize too well the shame and hesitation that Boltzweber describes. So where should I, or we, go from here? Once we've named and probed our deep hungers, once we've moved an inch closer to trusting God with the scariest desires of our hearts, where do we go next? Into contemplation, I think into silence, openness, and vulnerability, into a willingness to truly eat Jesus, to take him into ourselves day after day after day, 
through whatever spiritual practices work best for us. Prayer, meditation, Lectio Divina, song. Jesus wants to be so much more than a creed, a good example or a teacher in our lives. He wants to be food. He is food. Are we hungry for him? Will we allow his substance to become ours? The bread of heaven is ours for the tasting. May we absorb it. May we share it. May we desire it above all things. May its nourishment permeate us through and through until we, like Jesus, become life-saving bread for the whole world. For books this week, Dan reviews Ghosts of Gold Mountain, the epic story of the Chinese who built the Transcontinental Railroad by Gordon L. Chang. When Leland Stanford took a silver hammer and drove a golden spike into the newly completed Transcontinental Railroad on May 10, 1869, he celebrated the largest construction project in American history to that point, and the second largest in the world after the Suez Canal. And as a Stanford historian Gordon Chang shows in his definitive work of historical recovery, it never would have happened without the 20,000 Chinese laborers who comprised 90% of the workforce. These forgotten heroes became known as the Railroad Chinese. The project began in 1864 while the Civil War still raged. Whereas the Union Pacific Railroad started in Omaha and built westward, Chang explores the lived experience of the Chinese who worked for the Central Pacific Railroad Company that started in Sacramento and built eastward. Although the CPRR's 690 miles of the western leg was only about half the length of the UP's 1,086 miles, their task was far more complex and challenging. What those Chinese workers did staggers the imagination. The challenges to construction at the time were almost impossible to measure, think beyond human calculation. The railroad Chinese worked six days a week in three eight-hour shifts. All the work was done by manual labor. They blasted 15 tunnels through granite mountains. They lived and worked at elevations up to 7,000 feet. Winter snowdrifts could easily reach 30 feet, as skiers today can attest. The summer deserts of Nevada and Utah were sweltering. The supply chain of food and material was an organizational miracle. Violet racism was endemic. Governor Leland Stanford's infamous speech about the dregs of an inferior race. As many as a thousand Chinese died in the process. The pay? About a dollar a day. Whites were paid more. And their reward? Not long after they finished, the rail workers were pushed to the margins of American history and society due to vigilante violence and legally sanctioned racism like the 1892 Chinese Exclusion Act. What the CPRR and UP lines met in Promontory Summit, Utah, they forged a continuous road of iron across the entire country, making possible travel unprecedented in speed and scale. Travel time, not to mention safety from the Atlantic to the Pacific, was reduced from three to six months to one week. In a way, as Chang observes, the line connected Europe to Asia and revolutionized the global economy. It helped to unite a nation divided by war. There are no extant materials about this human drama written by the railroad Chinese. Chang recovers their story and in his telling honors them, not as passive victims, but as a resilient and resourceful people of remarkable agency. For films this week, Dan reviews Song Exploder. If you've ever wondered how music gets made, you might enjoy Song Exploder. It's a television series that began as an award-winning podcast of the same title in 2014 by Hrishikresh Hirway, then found its way to Netflix in late 2020 in its television format. 
The concept is simple but powerful. Each show features one musician who analyzes everything about the creative process that went into making one individual song. The lyrics and music, of course, which comes first. But also things like the studio recording, production personnel and technologies, autobiographical details, mistakes that were corrected, bad ideas that were rejected, archival footage, interviews, and so on. One particularly powerful part is how each episode plays snippets of the song over and over again at each incremental step of the creative process, for example, only the percussion, and then concludes with the final version played in its entirety. The host includes some basic history about the artist and the song. Song Exploder explores a broad array of styles and genres, everything from heavy metal, punk, and pop, to film scores and video game music. Right now, there are two television series. Season 1 features four 25-minute segments about Alicia Keys, Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton fame, R.E.M., and Ty Dolla Sign. My wife and I watch Season 2 that features Dua Lipa, The Killers, Nine Inch Nails, and Natalia Lafourcade. And lastly, for poems this week, Meditation by the Stove by Linda Poston. I have banged the fires of my body into a small but steady blaze here in the kitchen, where the dough has a life of its own, breathing under its damp cloth like a sleeping child, where the real child plays under the table, pretending the tablecloth is a tent, practicing departures, where a dim brown bird dazzled by light has flown into the window pane and lies stunned on the pavement. It was never simple, even for birds, this business of nests. The innocent eye sees nothing, Auden says, repeating what the snake told Eve, what Eve told Adam, tired of gardens, wanting the fully lived life. But passion happens like an accident. I could let the dough spill over the rim of the bowl, neglecting to punch it down, neglecting the child who waits under the table, the mild tears already smudging her eyes. We grow in such haphazard ways. Today I feel wiser than the bird. I know the window shuts me in, that when I open it, the garden smells will make me restless. And I have banked the fires of my body into a small domestic flame for others to warm their hands on for a while. Thank you for joining us at JourneyWithJesus.net for August 1st, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.